Hey friends, welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. My name's Matt. We're so glad you're tracking with us. Jesus Collective is a new relational network of churches and leaders with a vision to unite, amplify, and equip this Jesus-centered movement that God is raising up all over the place. During this pilot season, we're experimenting with different ways to build relationships with people in this movement, to put language to what Jesus-centered means, and to have meaningful and honest equipping conversations about the issues and opportunities facing our churches in this increasingly post-Christian context we find ourselves in. So, this podcast is one of those tools. You might find a number of different types of conversation formats shared here, and we hope you find it meaningful and engaging. You can learn more about us, join our mailing list, find information about upcoming online and in-person events, all that good stuff, at our microsite at JesusCollective.com, or you can find us on social media. And hey, we love hearing feedback and ideas and just meeting new Jesus-y people, so you can always reach out by email at connect at JesusCollective.com. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's get on with the podcast. I am thrilled to introduce to you, in all honesty, three of the people that I would put right at the top of my list in terms of living out, but also teaching and putting words to what this Jesus-centered idea, this Jesus-centered movement is all about. I'm going to introduce you to Greg Boyd, uh, teaching pastor at Woodland Hills Church and a great author. If you haven't read any of his books, you definitely need to put him on your list. Danielle Strickland, how do you even title Danielle? She's an author. She is a social justice advocate. She's a communicator, a spiritual leader. We just appreciate all the things she does for the kingdom. And Bruxy Cavey, he's a teaching pastor at the Meeting House Church. So we're going to get to them in a second. You know, this idea of being Jesus-centered. It sounds so obvious, doesn't it? It's like, what do you mean by that? Aren't we all Jesus-centered if we're Christians? And hopefully, yes, we'd all say, yes, that's important to us. But we'd all also be able to identify that throughout history, the church has put different things in the center. Maybe not even consciously, but the impact of that is it takes us away from our focus on Jesus, and weird stuff starts to happen. And we're here today because God is raising up a movement around the world of people that are hungry to get back to, or maybe even for the first time, a kingdom that always looks like Jesus and is always about a God that looks like Jesus and always wants to behave and be conforming to the character of Jesus. And we need to keep putting language to that. We need to keep putting equipping to that. People who are entering this space are then asking, where do I go, though, for belonging, for an understanding, for a place to sharpen my theology, for a place to actually see what it means to learn and live and lead in this Jesus-centered way. And so, like I said, these are three great voices that are helping us just carve out that language and carve out that path together as a broader community. So I'm thrilled to introduce them to you. I'm going to turn it right over to them. We're going to spend the next little bit just hearing from Greg, then Danielle, then Brux, and then we're going to open it up for a time of responding to some of the questions and thoughts that that's provoked in you. So you're going to want to send any questions or comments to us live in real time to the email address you can see on your screen. That's connect at jesuscollective.com. Connect at jesuscollective.com. And we're going to have a few minutes after these three share with us to respond to some of your questions. So you can be queuing those up now. All right, I'm going to introduce Greg first. Over to you, Greg, in Minnesota. Hey, folks. God bless you. Uh, I don't think I'll ever get used to talking to a camera in an empty room. It just feels so bizarre. But I'm imagining you, and that's anchoring me. And it's, uh, it's just a delight, a joy, a privilege to be part of this. Um, honestly, it feels to me like a Kairos moment, a, a unique 
it's a unique juncture of things. It's a, it's a turning point, I think, in this movement that God's raising up all over the globe, this Jesus-looking movement that uh, just believes in a Jesus-looking God and believes that God's raising up a Jesus-looking people to change the world in a Jesus kind of way. And that's and that is just profoundly, profoundly beautiful. It may sound kind of blasé when you first say it, but when you start working out the implications of that, really living like Jesus, well, there, it's a huge difference from what has passed as, as the faith uh, for, for uh, centuries, actually. So I, I really feel blessed to, to, to be a part of this. Um, I, I, I'm so blessed I wore my favorite T-shirt. This is it. I don't know if you can see it, but here's Jesus. And here's uh, Captain America, and the Hulk, and Superman, and all the rest, the Avengers. And Jesus is here saying, and that's how I saved the world. You guys all use your power over, you know, muscle tricks, whatever, but, but if you really want to change the world, you got to die for your enemies. Don't go crushing your enemies, die for your enemies. That's the center of the, of the gospel. So actually, it's a profound shirt, and that's the essence of what I want to share here uh, in the next, next couple minutes. Um, I, I just felt like it'd be good to, to start off, I'm a theologian, so I think theology, and I thought, since we're in this pandemic, this very strange pandemic, I mean, this meeting, this get-together isn't anything that we thought it was going to be. It's, it's way different. But uh, I, we're finding out that, that God's using this to our advantage. When we're weak, then he is strong. And there's something beautiful about the shaved down version of this. I, God can do more with it. I don't know. But uh, I want to do a, a kind of a reflection, on a, a Christ-centered perspective on this coronavirus, on the, on the pandemic that's going on around here. And I'll do it by uh, just talking a little bit about the hymn of creation in, in Colossians. Verses 15 through 20, I won't read it, but just kind of talk about it. Because here, it's, it's fascinating. Paul says that uh, uh, Christ is before all things, and he, uh, all things are created by him, and for him, and in him, and he is the image of God, and he holds together all things. And so, so the creation, this creation that we're in, is, 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 is birthed out of the kind of love that we see revealed in Jesus, and held together by the kind of love that we see revealed in Jesus. That's like the true gravity of the cosmos that holds everything together. And it all takes place in Jesus, and it's all to, to ultimately show forth the preeminence of Jesus, Paul says. He's first in everything. And yet, then in verse 19 he says that God was pleased to have all of his fullness to dwell in Christ in bodily form, and then to now be making, uh, reconciling all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth, reconciling all things to himself by means of the blood of the cross. Uh, the blood of the cross being this, their way of expressing the, the sacrificial love of God that's revealed on the cross. So all creation is by Jesus, for Jesus, through Jesus, in Jesus, and yet all creation needs reconciliation, which tells us that something's gone wrong. Um, something's broken. This creation that we're a part of is, is broken. There's conflict. It's, it doesn't embody and manifest the shalom of God the way God originally intended the creation and humankind to manifest the shalom and, and the character of God. Something has gone around, awry. Now, see, this messes with a lot of people's theology because my impression is that most Western Christians, at least, tend to assume that the fall affects human beings and sin affects human beings, so human beings are all screwed up. But basically, the world is the way God created the world to be. The cosmos is just fine. Uh, so we're, we're sort of screwed up actors on an otherwise pristine stage. And so they, they, they emphasize how the creation glorifies God. You can see the, the, the invisible things of God by the things which are made. Paul says that in Romans 1.20. And that's true. You can look at the creation and you see marvelous, glorious, wondrous things. It testifies to the intelligence and the power of, of our creator. But then see, when, when something like COVID-19 happens, when nature dishes out one of its nastier 
little things. When the parasite attacks the little child, it eats the eyes from the inside out. Uh, when you see this sort of thing, you ask the question, well, how does that glorify God? A lot of folks would just say, well, it doesn't, so where is God in this? Sadly, some Christians will say, oh, it does glorify God. All the pain and suffering and misery in the world and also into eternity. It all is for the glory of God, so God's causing it all. A lot of skeptics then are just justified in, their, in the rejection of God. Well, if that's the kind of God that you're asking me to worship, no, thank you. I'll do fine, fine, fine without him. Here's the thing. If we base our center of thinking about God and everything else on the person of Jesus Christ, you wouldn't come to the conclusion that God's up there sending out things like COVID-19 and all the other abysmal things that nature dishes our way. Throughout his ministry, Jesus is dealing with people who've got these physical infirmities. Things are wrong. Nature's not working the way nature's supposed to operate. Eyes are supposed to see, and this guy doesn't see. You know, backs are supposed to stand up straight, and this lady's got a back that's curled over. Luke, Luke 13. And, and never once does Jesus say, oh, this infirmity or this illness or this sickness or this death is for the glory of God. Never once. In fact, no one in the, in the Gospels or in the early church or even the post-apostolic church ever attributed those kind of things to God. Rather, uh, uniformly in the Gospels, throughout the New Testament and the early church, they identify uh, these infirmities and the things that afflict people and the things that afflict all of creation as being works of the devil. Uh, they understood that the creation as it now is, isn't exactly as God created it. Um, it's not that there's a demon behind every headache or, or every influenza strand or anything like that. It's just that if this world hadn't come under the oppression of the powers, it would not be functioning the way it does now. Something has gone awry. Uh, nature is not, what we have now is, is something of a crossfire between, between the things that God's up to and the things that the enemy's up to. And um, we have a role to play in all of that. Jesus told this, this parable. He said about this farmer who had his crop and someone sowed some tares in the crop. And the servant tells him that. And the farmer says, well, I didn't plant these things. This an enemy has done, Matthew 13. Uh, it is so crucial that we can tell the difference between what are the, the Abba Father's wheat and what are the tares of the enemy. And they're all kind of mixed together in this war zone world in which we live. We live in the fog of war. And in the fog of war, it's so crucial that you know what reflects the, 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 the character of your commanding officer and that you know what reflects the enemy. And so crucial that we're able to say this an enemy has done and the criteria i believe that we're called to use for that is jesus christ uh jesus says if you see me you see the father he says to philip why do you ask show us the father if you see me you see the father uh, paul says in colossians 1 that the fullness of god dwelt in christ it wasn't an aspect of God or a part of God or the, the nice side of God or the happy, smiley face of God concealing behalf, be behind Jesus, this wrathful father. Rather, the fullness of God, what makes God God, the character of God is fully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. If you see me, you see the father. In fact, Jesus says he most glorifies the father when he's lifted up, when he's put up on the cross, John 12. That's the hour of the father's glorification. And so and John sums up the whole gospel by saying, God is love, 1 John 4, 8. And here's how we know what love is. And listen to this. This is so crucial. We know what love is because Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 1 John 3, 16. So also we should lay down our life for one another. What he's saying is God is cross-like, self-sacrificial, enemy-embracing, non-violent, unwavering love. God loves like the rain falls, like the sun shines. He talks about that in, in, in Matthew 5. That's who God is. And so 
Kingdom people are, we are to be the tribe of people who dare to believe that God is that beautiful, that God is as beautiful as God's revealed to be in the cross of Jesus Christ. God is that self-sacrificial love all the way down to God's very essence. We're, we're dead to dare to believe that. And see, this is the foundation of everything as far as I'm concerned, because the beauty of your life will never outrun the beauty of your mental conception of God, and, and the beauty of your own relationship will, of God will never outrun the, the beauty of your mental conception of God. And so God gives us the most beautiful imagine, picture we could possibly imagine. And, and it, it's, it's as we conceive of God like that, that Paul says, 2 Corinthians 3, that we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. As it's who we behold that, transfer, that transforms us into what God knows that we, we can become, and always is going in the direction of Calvary. And then finally, Paul says this, that it's by means of the cross that God is now working to reconcile everything in heaven and earth and under the earth to himself. God right now, there's a force out in the universe. It's the force of Calvary. That love is working everywhere to reconcile everything so that it will all display the glory of Christ. Now, I don't know what that looks like for the Spirit to be working out through the outreaches of the cosmos. But on this planet, what it looks like for God to be reconciled everything to himself by means of the cross, it looks like the church. Uh, we're to be the body of Christ. We're to be doing exactly what Jesus did. Uh, Paul sums it up when he says, live in love. Imitate Jesus. Mimitai. Mimic Jesus. Uh, live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. Uh, so our call then is to manifest the good news of the kingdom uh, to everything in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth and to live in a way that is good news to the earth and the animal kingdom as well as to all the people around us. The earth and the animal kingdom, remember, that's our first mandate, uh, Genesis 1. And so we recover that. How we treat animals, how we treat the earth will reflect the character of God, the cruciform character of God. And then we're to manifest Abba Father's cruciform character by doing what Jesus did. When there's hungry, we, we bring food. Where there's hatred, we're to bring love. Where there's the homeless, we're to find homes. Uh, where there's conflict, we're to be peacemakers. Uh, we are to be put in, in contrast to all that is contrary uh, to the character of the Father in the nature, uh, in nature and, and in society. We're to live by, in contrast to that, displaying the beauty of God's awesome character. God's already doing it. Jesus says, I, I only do what I see the Father doing. Well, we know what God's up to in this world. This is what he's doing. It's cross-like love that's going to reconcile all things. Uh, enemy embracing love is going to reconcile all things. And our privilege, our, our, our great privilege is that we have the invitation to join God in doing that. And that's what the kingdom is. That's what the church is. We look like a corporate version of Jesus Christ, always reflecting the self-sacrificial love that's perfectly displayed on Calvary. When you find things in nature, in society, or in your own, own, own body, life, for, perhaps, be able to say, if it doesn't reflect the character of God as revealed in Jesus, you say, this an enemy has done. And we're to be on the side of the character of God fighting against all those things. That, in a nutshell, is the kingdom warfare that we're invited into. It's beautiful. It's It's costly. Uh, but it's the only one that wins in the end, and this kingdom and nothing else lasts forever and ever and ever. Amen. Craig, awesome. I've loved getting to know you and just hearing your passion for what it means to put Jesus at the center of everything. I'm hearing you share this idea that I know will be challenging Thanks. and encouraging for a lot of us, that just because there's pain and brokenness doesn't necessarily mean God caused it. God wants us to happen. He always looks like Jesus, but he invites us in in partnership with him to bring that reconciliation to the world around us. <clears throat> Thanks for that, Greg. We're going to come back to you in Q&A in a bit. Um, so stay warm. And let's, let's head to Danielle next. Danielle Strickland, how are you, Danielle? Can you hear me? 
Hey, I'm doing fantastic. Thanks. I appreciate it. It was great to hear from Greg. I took lots of fantastic notes and made a note to order that t-shirt. It's fantastic. Um, I wanted to actually uh, tell you a little bit about a water skiing experience that I had that helps me sort of navigate um, some of the space about living in the present tense and uh, this participation, this ongoing participation that we have with Jesus at the center. So I don't know how many of you are water skiers. I'm not much of a water skier, but I can kind of, I can, I can survive it. And I remember being behind this boat and someone else, a friend of mine was water skiing and I was trying for the first time and I was trying to explain, okay, you know, you're going to feel this resistance and then you're going to need to like hang on. Even when you feel like, ah, this is out of control. You're going to need to like hang on real tight and kind of press against the resistance because unless you can do that, that, that kind of posture, you're not going to be able to get up on top of the water. And then I remember, so she's like, okay, okay. She's practicing this and we take off a couple times slow and she, you know, rips out of her hands and we do it again. And then finally she gets the hang of this, like, oh, you hang on and you push back against this resistance. So you can, you can do this and you can get on top of the water. And then she wiped out. And I remember, you know, when you wipe out in your water skiing, you know what you're supposed to do, right? Do you know what you're supposed to do? Let me tell you, you're supposed to let go. (laughs) But this uh, woman was new at this. And because we had told her so hard at the beginning, in order to get up on this thing, you've got to hang on, that she was just like hanging on. And we were like dragging her through the water. And she's like, like almost drowning. And so we're like yelling out of the back of the boat, like, let go, like, let go of the rope, let go of the rope, because we don't want her to die. And, And so so she's letting go and there is this weird like look came over her because she's so used to hanging on in order to keep her balance on top of the water and then all of a sudden there is this moment where she's supposed to let go and there's a moment that happens just like that for the disciples and I think probably for all of our lives there is this this tension moment where Jesus is in the middle of this hang on let go and even when we're doing those postures prayer prayer when we started out you know there's a lot of clenching and then a lot of releasing And this idea of when do you know when to hang on and when do you know when to let go? Because these are the postures that we need to practice as disciples, a letting go and a hanging on. But when and how, and more importantly, with a Jesus-centered way of life is who? Who? And uh, this is this uh, famous story. Many of you will know this, and I've used this in my life over and over again. It keeps coming back to me. It's one of those stories that's a centering story that helps me, reminds me almost on a daily basis, if not a weekly basis, of how to uh, assume the posture that I need to assume and who to follow. And it's about a transfiguration in Luke's gospel. My favorite version is in Luke's gospel. It's also in Matthew, and the, it's uh, great there too. Uh, But Jesus takes Peter, John, and James up on a mountain to pray, and he's praying. The appearance of his face is transformed. His clothes become dazzling white. So again, uh, if you're following astutely from the Bible, you'll know Daniel has painted this prophetic picture of the person of Jesus. These are the attributes, this glowing, uh, you know, all of these attributes of the Son of Man that Daniel prophesied. And then if you flip to the end of your Bible of Revelation, you'll also see this again. So this is Jesus uh, displaying his glorious divine self. This is him transfigured, uh, like unveiling uh, who he really is, the, the divinity, the lordship, the sovereignty, the power, the light uh, of Jesus himself. So this is what's happening. And then suddenly two men, Moses and Elijah, appear and began talking with Jesus 
and they're glorious to see and they're speaking about his exodus which we won't have time to get into all of this stuff but anyway peter and the others have fallen asleep which again we don't have time to get into that but can you just make a note like there it is possible that in the middle of jesus's finest revelation you could fall asleep uh, when they woke up they saw it and they saw moses and elijah and then peter shouts out you know the story we should make memorials for both of these guys and he's he's putting jesus sort of in the mix of this moses and elijah now uh, just for, for time purposes, what I want to say for me is that the temptation when it comes to uh, following Jesus is to bring our past, which I think Moses represents here so well, the past, the history, the way things have always been done, the law, the discipleships, more specifically the law in the Israelites context and the Jewish context, but all of the things that have been done before. And Elijah, of course, is this fiery prophet they're expecting. So Elijah is this future and I think most of the time we're hanging on either to the past, the measures that used to define success, we're hanging on to the past in terms of religious sensibilities of what makes sense for us and what time we're doing. We're hanging on to the past even in our own lives and relationship with God. It should look like this. It should look like this because it looked like this in the Great Awakening. It should look like this because it looked like this in someone that I esteem. It should look like this because I saw my friend. It looks like this for my friend. And we live in the should, which is in this past sort of framework. It's filled with regret and frustration and uh, also idolatry and then the other temptation is to hang on to the future the the, the could uh, and what it's supposed to look like when it comes this perfect future this idealized so the spirit of Elijah comes the spirit of fire no one of course recognized that in John the Baptist in the announcement of the kingdom and in the proclamation of who Jesus was but there's this some sort of expectation that everything will be perfect in this perfect future and this happens theologically you know this when the church gets like that or when I finally arrive like this or when I finally reach a, a leadership level of perfection or on and on this goes or it can even happen in our own lives you know when I finally get married or when I finally have the perfect family or when I finally am perfected of my own imperfections all that stuff and so we hang on to the past and we hang on to the future and then there's this moment in the Mount of Transfiguration which I think is the moment of a Jesus-centered life where God comes Moses and Elijah disappear and there is only Jesus and God says this is my son <laughs> follow him this is my son follow him this is this is this is it. This is it. There's no more of this and there's no more of that. In other words, you can let go of the past and you can let go of the future and you can be present in this moment with Jesus, who is the eternal now. Jesus is always present tense. In other words, this is not some decision that you once made or some decision that you might make. This is the decision that you make today and every day and every hour where you follow Jesus for real life, where you listen to Jesus, where you orientate your life around Jesus. And where Jesus goes is fascinating because, of course, Jesus descends, which is the opposite of what everybody thought that the Messiah would do. The Messiah was always ascending over politically, ascending socially, ascending, you know, prosperity driven. But Jesus descends off of the mountain says follow me this is the plan that I have the redemptive plan of going down of self-emptying love of sacrificial love of demonstrating what it is that God is like that God is love look at me and so as, uh, orientating Jesus in this present tense this is no longer a should game and this is no longer a could game this is a now game what will you do now you can let go you can let go of the past you can let go of the future and then you can hang on 
to the person of Jesus and only Jesus. You can hang on to the words of Jesus. You can hang on to the direction of Jesus. You can hang on to the practices of Jesus. You can hang on to the presence of Jesus, to the practice of Jesus, to the words of Jesus, to the impact of Jesus, to the indwelling of Jesus. Uh, this is what it means to live a Jesus-centered life right now in the present tense in the here and now. So I'm not sure what you need to do. Sometimes to get on the going on this Jesus-centered life, you need to hang on and push back against resistance so you can get up over a dominant culture, whether that's a religious one or whether that's a pagan one. It doesn't really matter. You got you to gotta hang on to Jesus. And sometimes you need to let go. Let go of the religious bumpy ride that's going to try to drown you with works or let go of your own selfish ambition and the idea that you could somehow do this yourself and the bumpiness and the water log that's going to come. You're going to die in both of those cases. But you can hang on to Jesus. So I hope that you're going to learn, even over these days, maybe deeper levels of letting go and hanging on to the person who is Jesus, the center of our lives, the center of our theology, the center of our understanding and practical outworking of God, the center of our day, the center of our own thoughts, the center of our lives. I pray this helps you. Can I just confess that every time I hear Danielle speak, I, like, I end with this sense of energy, yet at the same time, it's a calm sense of energy because you just seem so real and authentic, Danielle. So I'm loving already this combination of Greg reminding us, who is this God? He's a good God. And Danielle reminding us, yeah, and it's also not just about belief, not that you said that, Greg, but this is an invitation in the present to be living like Jesus. It's so good. So good. Thank you, Danielle. We're going to move on to Brux next. Brux, it's great to have you with us. Um, would love to just have you finish off this segment, just taking us back to our DNA like Greg and Danielle have about what does it really mean to be Jesus-centered, especially right now. So over to you. Great to see you. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be a part of this. And hello, friends. My goodness, this has been a feast already. I asked to go last out of the three of us so I could just take notes and then and then pronounce a blessing and say amen, because I knew we're going to get such good stuff already. Um, but I've got to earn my keep, so let me share a little bit more with you. And I thought I might address, as part of this kind of introductory session, um, the answer to the question some people might be asking is, what do you really mean when you talk about being Jesus-centered? It's something that Matt alluded to right from the very beginning. And certainly every Christian would say, we want to be Jesus-centered. Um, and yet, there is a ways of manifesting that, I think, that at times, as Matt said earlier, the church has not fully engaged in. And so we want to be, for this generation, a group of people who are just reminding us all what that means and holding up a very clear picture of that, which every generation needs to do, or the church has a history of losing its way. It's not just theoretical. Church history is fraught with us putting other things in the center, while at the same time we say we're Jesus-centered. And that's what makes it so subtle uh, in its distraction and in its it's devilish manipulation is because we're a bunch of people who call ourselves Christians. We're all about Christ. So we say it and maybe sometimes because we say it and it's right in our name, it's right in our brand, we assume we're following Christ. Um, Oz Guinness was a uh, philosopher, is a philosopher. I don't think he's died, so that's good news. Um, Oz Guinness is a philosopher who has this line that I love. He says, um, Comparison is the mother of clarity. Comparison is the mother of clarity. So I have found this principle very true. When I want to understand what something is, we'll just compare it to what it's not. And what we find within church history is that 
while we are a movement of people who say we're Jesus-centered, we are Christians, the other things that have taken center place at times have been... Uh, Sometimes the Bible itself, which has become center place, we see this during the Protestant Reformation, which is an important step for the church to take to revalue the scriptures. But until we have the scriptures uh, playing the role of leading us to Jesus, like John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, rather than the scriptures being the word of God in toto, but rather pointing to the word of God in flesh. Until the scriptures play that role, what we find is that the Protestant Reformation, while sola scriptura became important, uh, they became just as violent, just as witch burny, just as warry, uh, just as horrific as the Catholic Church that they were fighting against. And they missed something fundamental that Protestants, I think, now would say that was wrong. So we have a real-world case study of people saying, we are passionate about the Bible and we will put it in the center. And some of the best minds that the Protestant Reformation has ever produced were part of those first generations, and yet they had this significant blind spot because the Bible contained a lot of violence. Uh, I was listening to a sermon not that long, long ago from a, a Protestant teacher who I love and who I respect. I learn a lot from, but he was reading through the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus, you know, teaching nonviolent enemy love. And he was reading this and I thought, how is he going to handle this? Because I, I know he doesn't fully embrace this as a lifestyle. So I wonder how, what his hermeneutic is going to be. And he said, he said, it's obviously that it's obvious that Jesus teaches this, no doubt. And I thought, oh, good, you're a convert. And he said, but we also have to remember that Moses often used violence and was led by God to do so. And we see examples in the Old Testament of King David, etc. So we need to balance it out. And I thought, oy vey, uh, we, <laughs> we are not the people who live by the symbol of the yin-yang, of trying to balance out the new covenant with the seasoning of the old covenant. Uh, we are out of balance. It is all Jesus. And then Jesus sends us back into the Old Covenant to read it differently as a pointer to Christ. One of my favorite uh, Bible verses is in John, for, uh, John chapter 1, verse 18. Um, John 1, 18. Let me read it, um, and you would know it well, but um, I'm going to read it from the uh, New American Standard Edition says, uh, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Can we just unpack that for a little bit? First, he says, no one has seen God at any time, which we know is not literally true. In the Old Testament, uh, many people saw God, at least some physical manifestation of God. Adam and Eve walk and talked with God in the garden, and Abraham entertained God in the form of three visitors, and Moses talked to God face to face. Uh, we read that the 70 elders were invited up the mountain, and they also got to see God. Um, and then all of Israel saw God, if you count the pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. I mean, God was seen by people, and yet John said, as emphatically, no one has seen God at any time. You're going to have to rethink everything you think you know. You're going to have to rethink everything you think you know and think you've seen in light of this revelation of Jesus, the infinite made finite. No one has seen God at any time when you compare it to Jesus. Uh, the only begotten God, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. There's a word we don't use enough in English, bosom, which means chest cavity. And he says, you 
you haven't seen God unless you've seen Jesus who is in the bosom, the, the chest cavity. And some translations in English will soften it a bit, paraphrase it to say who is close to God or in special relationship with God. Uh, but it's literally the one who's in the chest cavity of God. Well, that's, that's our heart, right? Jesus is in the heart. He's the heart of God. When God says, I want to show you my heart. You know, sometimes we'll say, I need to have a heart to heart talk with you. Or can I just share my heart with you? And when someone starts that way, it, they're saying something very important. And here, John says, I've spent three years hanging out with Jesus as my mentor, my master, my Lord, my Savior. And I'm convinced he shows us the heart of God. And if you haven't seen God's heart in Jesus, you just haven't seen God. And he says, so he, the one who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And that word explain is the Greek word exegeo, exegeo, from which we get our English exegete or exegesis, which means to explain a passage of scripture. So right now I am exegeting John 1.18. And when we exegete John 1.18, we find out that Jesus exegetes God to us. Jesus is God's exegetical sermon of himself. And that causes us to rethink everything. And so while we are grateful for the movements of the church within Catholicism, Orthodoxy, Protestantism, Anabaptism. And we also realize that all of us can get off track if anything else gets in the center of our faith, including even the other members of the Trinity who we are supposed to understand. Like here we're supposed to understand the Father through Jesus. We will we'll have the wrong picture of the Father if we don't see the Father revealed in Jesus. We won't understand or recognize or discern the voice of the Spirit. We'll get it confused if we don't filter it through Jesus. Uh, there's this beautiful line, I'll leave you with this in uh, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, where he says, through Jesus you believe in God, he's saying to the church, 1 Peter 1, 21, through Jesus you believe in God. I used to think I had to figure God out, and then I would decide which person represented God the best. Uh, that's sometimes how we preach our apologetics. Prove God first, and then secondarily tell people why Jesus is the best version of how you're going to... Jesus, uh, Jesus, I think, and, and Peter just says, start with Jesus. And through Jesus, you'll believe in God. Uh, I got this from something A.W. Tozer describes. Can you see this? If you can picture a capital letter V on a line, that point, that place where the V touches the line, we'll say the line is all of creation, that finite point, that would represent Christ. Uh, he is the finite representation of the infinite. And I love that it's not an upside down triangle, but it stretches up into infinity. You have the Father and you have the Spirit. Um, but if we want access to understand what the Father's like, if we want to discern and recognize the voice of the Spirit, we start with Jesus, and through Jesus, we have access to the fullness of who God is. We want to be that movement for this day and age to just be the constant reminder, the broken record that says Jesus is at the center of our faith, and, and always ask the question, then how does that change how we do theology and life and fellowship? All right, I think that's it for me. I'll turn it back over to you, Matt. Brox, thanks so much. Jesus exegetes God to us, if I can put a few words on it in summary. That's awesome. So we've got a few questions here. Would love to just spend a few minutes, maybe one for each of you. Um, if you've got more questions, remember to send them to connect.jesuscollective.com. Even if we don't get to them now, maybe we can respond to them later or in another forum, but don't hesitate to send them in. So a few questions. Um, Brox, you talked a little bit about Contrast. I'd love to throw this one back to Greg, though, and say, what difference does it make? I'm trying to paraphrase the question here. What difference does it make in terms of our relationship with power? 
being Jesus-centered. So power systemically, maybe it's governments, maybe it's institutional authorities around us, but on a personal level in our own lives too, what difference does it make when we talk about being Jesus-centered in terms of our relationship with power? And how would we contrast that with the way sometimes we as Christians can, can behave otherwise? Greg, we'd love to throw that one to you. That was a fantastic question. Fantastic. Um, it, it, I would put it like this. The question is, more precisely, what kind of power are we to have a relationship with? Uh, these guys, all the other superheroes of the universe, uh, including all the folks that we heroize in our, na- in our nations, uh, the saviors of our nations, the, the warriors of our nations, they all, all use a power over others. And that's the kind of power that the world's always clamored for, right? Uh, that's the kind of power that, that, that people have always ascribed to God because it's the power that we would want to have, the power to impose our will on others, to get our way, to protect ourselves, and to conquer our enemies. Uh, Jesus comes and offers a, a completely different kind of power. And that's the power of uh, the cross, the power of self-sacrificial love. Um, and, and, and it is, in fact, I mean, Paul calls it the, the power of God, Colossians 1.18. Uh, to the world, it looks stupid. What could look more foolish than, than the omnipotent God getting crucified on the cross? But Paul says, yeah, well they, well, they think it's weak and stupid. To us who are being saved, it is the power and the wisdom of God. So when God shows off the kind of character God's got, the kind of power that God's got, it looks like Jesus Christ getting crucified on the cross. Because it's, Jesus says when, when he's lifted up, he'll draw all people to himself. This is the influential power of beauty and the influential power of self-sacrificial love is the strongest force in the universe. Because uh, bombs and bullets and laws and shoulds and baseball bats or whatever can, yeah, they can, you, can, you can do some things with that. But, but nothing, can, you, you can force anyone to do anything if you've got enough power. But you can't change their heart. You can't transform an enemy into a friend, which is only the self-sacrificial love of God does that. And so we're called to follow the, to, to, to manifest the kind of power that Jesus manifested, which means the other kind of power will always be a temptation to us, as it was for Jesus. He was offered all the power, the power over, the power to control uh, of all the kingdoms of the world. And think of all the good things he could have done if he would have said yes to that. Uh, but he would have to do it in a power over way, uh, in a way that would honor Satan's way of doing it. And so Jesus says, no, thanks. I came to get all the kingdoms of this world, but not that way. I'll do it with my own kind of power. And that's the power of his self-sacrificial love on the cross. We're to imitate that and, and to consider the power over strategy as something that is a temptation that we're to say no to. Uh, the last thing I'll say is this. Uh, for the first three centuries, the church did this pretty well. Not perfect, but pretty well. And then came the fateful fourth century when Constantine got alleged vision and became a Christian and then legalized Christianity and then made it the official religion of the Roman Empire. And that's when Christians began to put down the power of the cross and began to pick up the power of the sword. And now the church becomes just a religious version of the state, what's already out there. The distinctiveness of the kingdom is our distinctive kind of power. The humility, the servant character uh, that lays out its life for others to win over others rather than trying to conquer them or impose our will upon others awesome thank you greg i'm sure you could give us way more on that one um let's maybe go to at least one more here i'm i'm just paraphrasing some questions that are coming in here um yeah there's a really good one danielle i'd love to throw this one to you what are some things that the church might have to let go of in the future um especially through this jesus-centered lens what are some of the things that the church of the future might have to let go of You know, it's really fascinating, but I think the season in which we're finding ourselves right now is forcing the church to let go of a lot of things that it thought were essential uh, to itself. Like, I think even big 
gatherings. I think even in-person things. Uh, I think even hierarchical structure, for example. Um, I think in the illustration that I was using from the, you know, the transfiguration, uh, it was clear that what they needed to let go of was tradition. And specifically, I would say traditionalism. So just doing the religious routines for the sake of doing the religious routines. I think we need to let go of a lot of that. But then even I think this prophetic mindset that there is someone who has it completely together, that somebody who has it completely right, that there is some perfect ideal. Uh, you know, Bonhoeffer has this lovely book called uh, Together, Living Together, Community, oh, Loving Together, I can't remember the name of the book. Anyway, it's got Together in the title, Life Together. Uh, and he says, you know, the, the biggest hindrance to authentic Christian community is the idea that there is a perfect one. You know, this utopian idea of a perfect community or a perfect church is in the way of the here and the now and the present tense practice of those things. But I, I would say bigger is better. We need to let go of that. I think some of the things that Greg just shared about power, we need to let go of old ideas of power as force um, over somebody. I think that needs to go. I think we need to let go of ascension myths that uh, celebrity uh, ascension idea that there are that even Christians are intended to be bigger or better than uh, the rest of everybody. I think that's a, a religious and terrible, maybe even secular idealized version of Christianity we need to let go of. And uh, I'm sure there's there's a lot more. <laughs> Those are a few. So good. Brux, I'm conscious of our time here, but I want to just end with a question for you. Um, all of you in one way or another have referenced the idea of the peaceful way of Jesus, enemy love. A lot of times that can be filtered through a lens of war or not war, but more in a day-to-day -day sense in a culture that is rife with division, and we're seeing some of those divisions escalated now amidst a pandemic when you add in these new variables. I'm giving you an impossible job of boiling peace theology down into a 30-second answer, but give us some practical thoughts about how can we be living life as peacemakers, as we read in Jesus' words in the Beatitudes right now, not that there's a war happening, or maybe there is in some parts of the world, but for a lot of us, what does it mean to be peacemakers right now in our day-to-day -day lives? That's great, Matt. Okay, I'm going to be quick. You know how in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus helps us see the principle embedded within the precept as he walks through some cases of old covenant law, like thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not commit adultery. And he says, what is the reason behind the rule, the principle and the precept? Uh, we don't murder because we honor and value people as image bearers of God. We don't commit adultery because we honor and value people as image bearers of God. We love people. And when Jesus helps us learn how to love people, then, I mean, the bonus is we probably won't commit adultery and we won't murder them. But but if we only try and obey the letter of the law, we are not going to change the world. So it starts with our hearts, as I know Ken is going to help us with in a few moments. It starts with the inside out. And the early church got this, the early church. And so I'll just read one verse from 1 John, First uh, John 3, mm, 14 and 15. So it's kind of two verses. Here it is. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And then he says in verse 15, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. 
And so they got it. They understood the teaching of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to start with an inner cultivation of love and honor for our enemies, the people around us who maybe we're locked up with and have to live with, or people down the street, or people at work, or people in politics that from a distance we just can't stand. Uh, we are going to, even them, we need to cultivate a disposition of honor for the image of God in them, while at the same time we speak truth. And that's going to be our ongoing challenge, but that inside-out change is going to be the change then that God uses, I think, to change the world. Thank you so much to all three of you. There's so much more we could unpack here, and we will over time. Uh, everything doesn't end today and tomorrow, obviously, but you've just drawn us back to so many principles that are so key to us when we unpack what Jesus-centered means, what we want to be all about at Jesus Collective. So thank you to all three of you. We love you guys. Thanks for listening. And hey, don't forget to check in at JesusCollective.com where you can learn more about us, join our mailing list, find info about upcoming online and in-person events, all that good stuff. Or you can find us on social media too. And listening is such an important part of our journey, especially in these early days. So you can feel free to reach out to us with ideas and feedback and suggestions. You can always connect with us by email at connect at JesusCollective.com. We'd love to hear from you.